Good morning, everyone, and welcome. It's so wonderful to join with Bishop Mark Rivetuso, my brother priest and deacons, and the men and women religious, and all of you this morning as we celebrate the gift of life that God gives to us and the witness that he calls us to share in our world. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. peace be with you. In the first reading, we hear of Paul, again, in the midst of his people, witnessing to the power of Jesus Christ. Let us reflect on our own lives, how we ourselves have witnessed to Jesus at work in us. For those times when we have failed through our sinfulness, let us seek the Lord's forgiveness and mercy. I confess to Almighty God and to you, my brothers and sisters, that I have greatly sinned in my thoughts and in my words, in what I have done and in what I have failed to do, through my fault, through my fault, through my most grievous fault. Therefore, I ask Blessed Mary, ever virgin, all the angels and saints, and you, my brothers and sisters, to pray for me to the Lord our God. May Almighty God have mercy upon us, forgive us our sins, and bring us to everlasting life. Amen. Lord, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. Let us pray. O God, who restore human nature to yet greater dignity than at its beginnings, look upon the amazing mystery of your loving kindness, and in those you have chosen to make new through the wonder of rebirth, may you preserve the gifts of your enduring grace and blessing. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, God forever and ever. Amen. Amen. 
A reading from the Acts of the Apostles. From Paphos, Paul and his companions set sail and arrived at Perga in Pamphylia. But John left them and returned to Jerusalem. They continued on from Perga and reached Antioch in Pisidia. On the Sabbath, they entered into the synagogue and took their seats. After the reading of the law and the prophets, the synagogue officials sent word to them, my brothers, if one of you has a word of exhortation for the people, please speak. So Paul got up, motioned with his hand and said, fellow children of Israel and you others who are God-fearing, listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our ancestors and exalted the people during their sojourn in the land of Egypt. With uplifted arm, he led them out. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the desert. When he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance at the end of about 450 years. After these things, he provided judges up to Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king. God gave them Saul, son of Kish, a man from the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years. Then he removed him and raised up David as their king. Of him he testified, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will carry out my every wish. From this man's descendants, God, according to his plan, has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus. John heralded his coming by proclaiming a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as God was completing his course, he would say, what do you suppose that I am? I am not he. Behold, one is coming after me. I am not worthy to unfasten the sandals of his feet. The word of the Lord. Oh, 
According to John. When Jesus had washed the disciples' feet, he said to them, Amen, amen, I say to you, no slave is greater than his master, nor any messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you understand this, blessed are you if you do it. I am not speaking to all of you. I know those whom I have chosen. But so that the scripture might be fulfilled, the one who ate my food, has raised his heel against me. From now on, I am telling you before it happens, so that when it happens, you may believe that I am. Amen, amen, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. 
the Gospel of the Lord. My brothers and sisters, what a wonderful morning this is to see all of you here standing for life. I thank Legatus for sponsoring this annual prayer breakfast to bring us together, first of all in prayer, and then to help us learn more about what we can do in promoting the gospel of life. Whenever I hear of the adventures of St. Paul, I wonder whether he sometimes said in his life, God, why didn't you leave me alone? I was living my life in the way that I liked, and here you made my life so complicated. We hear of Paul's apostolic journeys, of what he did to go and spread the good news, of what he sacrificed in himself and how he had such great insight into the life of the Lord Jesus. Paul, an apostle who never met the Lord Jesus in his earthly life, in his public ministry, but encountered the risen Lord on the road to Damascus, was forever transformed by that encounter. And even though, because he had been such a great persecutor of Christianity, many were skeptical when they heard of his conversion, including Ananias, who was sent to heal Paul of his blindness. Paul turned out to be the greatest preacher of Christianity. It was Paul who had the insight to open Christianity to the Gentiles, to realize the universal call of salvation, and to promote that call, not amongst just one people, but to promote that call amongst all peoples. And even though Paul's life became complicated, we know well in the recounting of the Acts of the Apostles all that Paul had faced shipwrecks, rejection, being run out of towns and villages. Yet, Paul remained faithful to that vision of the risen Christ that he had on the road to Damascus. Not only did Paul remain faithful in his witness, but Paul also wrote of the treasures of Christianity that we hold to this day in his letters to the different communities. When some communities needed encouragement, Paul was able to encourage them. When they needed admonition, Paul was not hesitant to admonish them. When they needed reminding of whom they were called to serve, Paul was not hesitant in proclaiming that they were all called to be servants of Jesus Christ. His letters continue to inspire us today. His letters remind us 
who stand up for life, that even though so many forces seemed against Paul and seemed against us, Paul knew that in the end, the gospel of Jesus Christ would triumph. We're here this morning because we believe too that the gospel of Jesus Christ, which gives to us life, will triumph over all adversity that we face, will triumph even over the tragedy of abortion, of the sin that cries to heaven. As we gather here this morning, as we listen to the words of Paul, so eloquently preached in that synagogue, we're inspired by how he could look at the signs of the times, how he could proclaim the Lord Jesus. That audience was gathered there wondering what Paul would say and what does he do? He recounts in a few words the whole history of Israel. And in that recounting, we can imagine the people being drawn more and more and more into his story. And then Paul brings the story to its logical conclusion. Finally, God sent Jesus, his only son, into the world. It follows so naturally, as Paul tells us in that reading today from the Acts of the Apostles. For each one of us, too, as we recount human history, we know that the message of Christianity has been proclaimed in season and out of season. When those who wanted to hear those words and longed for life heard them, and welcome them, and even when many didn't. We're here today to say that along with Paul and with millions of those who follow the Lord Jesus in his ways, we proclaim that his will will triumph. We proclaim that the gift of life that is given to each one of us the gift of life that God so graciously bestows upon us is a gift that each one of us cherish. And no matter what human frailty will bring about, that message does not change. That message cries to be proclaimed. And so as we gather here today, and we see some of those dark clouds parting that have affected our nation for the past 50 years in the decision of Roe versus Wade. We can see that light coming through, knowing that life and God's will and God's plan will always triumph. In the midst of all the adversity that he faced, after he had that vision of the risen Christ on the road to Damascus, St. Paul never stopped preaching Christ crucified and risen. Nothing could thwart him from preaching that word. So gathering here this morning, 
let us have that same resolve as St. Paul, knowing that Jesus Christ triumphs always and that our message of life is a message that needs to be heard, that needs to be proclaimed. And in doing so, may we be true witnesses to the love that God has bestowed on us in giving us life. And may we fight for the most defenseless, the child in the womb, knowing that God's presence is always with us. Mindful of the many ways in which we need God's healing in our lives, let us offer to him our prayers. For all who shepherd us in faith, especially Archbishop Rosansky, may we boldly proclaim Christ as Lord and Savior and bring the world to share in God's gift of eternal life. Let us pray to the Lord. Lord For the leaders of our communities and governments, May the Lord make his presence known to them as they carry out their duties. Let us pray to the Lord. Lord For those who struggle with despair or doubt, may the Spirit bring them confidence and hope in the Lord. Let us pray to the Lord. Lord For this community of faith, may the Lord help us grow in reverence and awe, particularly for the gift of the Blessed Sacrament. Let us pray to the Lord. Lord for all those present today, may we be guided by the Holy Spirit to be courageous disciples of Christ and strive to protect the sanctity of all human life. Let us pray to the Lord. Lord For those who have died, may they rejoice in God's presence in heaven with all the angels and saints. Let us pray to the Lord. Lord Almighty and eternal God, you sent your only Son as Lord and Savior. Hear our prayers and grant us the grace to be always steadfast in faith. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen.
all of us have been shocked and horrified by Putin's senseless invasion of the Ukraine, by the destruction, the war crimes, and the genocide of over 30,000 innocent Ukrainian civilians. But when we see the images of our good priests in dusty bomb shelters saying mass with the Ukrainian people and our Polish Knights of Columbus welcoming and caring for millions of Ukrainian refugees, I'm reminded that our Catholic Church is the greatest force for good in this world. <clears throat> when we look at our own country, we know there is an even larger genocide occurring here. Since the Roe v. Wade court decision in 1973, there have been, and it's hard for me to say this, 64 million abortions in this country. Like in the Ukraine, our Catholic Church is here with us, crying out from the pulpit, with us protesting in the street, and with us before legislatures and courts trying to protect the most innocent, the most guiltless children in the womb. As people of faith, we know these two fights are separated by half a world, but they have something in common. They're part of the same eternal fight of good versus evil. Indeed, this is the same fight for the control of our very own souls. And Mother Church is there with us in the confessional, at the Eucharistic table, with the rosary, and by the selfless service of her religious priests and nuns. We are the Church of God. We are the body of Christ. We are connected to each other spiritually. And when we resist great evil, we grow in sanctity. Our struggle against evil not only makes us stronger, but contributes to the renewal of our church and indeed the entire world. In this struggle, we are blessed to have a great leader, our own good shepherd, our own bishop who represents Christ to us and is the visible unity of our church here in St. Louis. It is my pleasure to introduce to you our friend, our Archbishop, Mitchell T. Rosansky. I've had a few minutes uh, during breakfast to be able to talk with Sister Anima Christi and Sister Veritas, and uh, they asked me, how do I find St. Louis? And I said, I have found here such a very deep and rich Catholic culture that really permeates everything. And it's because of your dedication in living out the faith and in bringing the gospel to so many that I can say our Catholic culture truly is a positive force in our area. We're looked to as examples by different denominations. We collaborate and work with different denominations for the common good but we do so because we are Catholic. So sisters, you are here at a very, very Catholic event, and we're glad that you're here to be with us and to celebrate with us as we gather for this uh, Gospel of Life prayer breakfast sponsored by Legatus. Now a few words about Sister Mary Veritas. I told Sister also that she's breaking the stained glass ceiling this morning. <laughs> Because those of you who have been very faithful to our Legatus prayer breakfast, Sister is the first woman to address us. So, Sister, we're very, very proud that you're here with us. Thank you.
Sister Mary Veritas was born and raised in Alberta, Canada, deeply moved by the beauty of the truth of God's love for the human person and experiencing a profound call to consecration. She entered the Sisters of Life in 2010 after graduating from the University of Alberta with a degree in biology and English literature. That's quite a combination. She professed her final vows in 2018 and currently serves as the community's director of evangelization, residing at St. Jane Francis de Chantel Convent in the Bronx, New York. She also serves as the editor of the Imprint Magazine and the co-host of Let Love, a podcast with the Sisters of Life. The Sisters of Life are a religious community that were founded in 1991 by the late Cardinal John O'Connor of New York, who, who they take a fourth vow to protect and enhance the sacredness of human life. Immersed in Eucharistic prayer within a vibrant community life, their missions include caring for vulnerable pregnant women and their unborn children, inviting those wounded by abortion into the healing mercy of Jesus, fostering a culture of life through evangelization, retreat, works of spiritual accompaniment of college student, students, and upholding the beauty of marriage and family life. Sister Veritas, welcome to you and Sister Anima Christi. We're very proud and privileged to have you with us today. We look forward to hearing your words. Thank you. Thank you so much, Archbishop Rosowski. It's really a gift to be with you all. Sister Annam and I were just talking about how much we love St. Louis. In our, we got here last afternoon, and the kindness, the hospitality, the toasted ravioli, everything <laughs> is amazing. So we are so happy to be here and to be with you. And I just wanted to start, this, this talk is called Love is the Answer. And I just want to start with a little, little prayer. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, come Holy Spirit, come Lord Jesus. Lord Jesus, we thank and praise you for your goodness, your mercy, your blessings. We just ask that you uh, pour your spirit upon us right now. Help us to receive your word. Help us to know ourselves as beloved and chosen. We ask our Blessed Mother to pray for us as we pray, Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women. Blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Our Lady, Mother of Life, pray for us. The Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen. You know, there's a school by one of our convents where our sisters would often go and have lunch with the students, uh, uh, you know, every now and then. And one day, one sister was sitting with a group of first grade students, and this is in the Bronx, and one of them looked at her and asked her in kind of typical Bronx fashion, she said, what's that thing on your head? And the sister started to say, well, you know how in a wedding, a bride wears a veil? She said, well, I wear a veil because I'm a bride. Uh, I'm married to Jesus. And the little girl, in total shock, slams her hands down on the table and says, he chose you? 
<laughs> Thanks, kid. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> he chose each of us. You know, from all eternity, he desired that you be, that you exist, right? And he, he wanted to make you in his own image and likeness, a unique and unrepeatable reflection of his glory, right? There's nobody that's ever been like you or will be. There's only one you. And your worth doesn't come from what you can do or produce or achieve or, you know, how much money you make or who your friends are. He loves you for you, the deep you, you know, the, the you you, maybe sometimes you try to hide. He loves you for you. And he made you for infinite communion with, with him and with each other in heaven. So we can't treat ourselves cheaply, right? The fact that we exist means that we are loved. To be is to be loved. And it's actually living out of this love, living out of this chosenness that not only shocks the world, as it shocked that little girl from the Bronx, but it actually heals the world. You know, and as we well know, you know, especially in, in the wake of the Supreme Court leak, uh, we know that abortion, euthanasia, assisted suicide, right, they fracture society, they fracture culture, hearts, families. And so how do we heal, right? How do we engage with those whom we disagree? You know, how do we engage with those who persecute us? Um, how do we engage with those who are vulnerable or with those who have suffered? Uh, and I think in one word, I would say love. <laughs> and it made me think of one story one of our sisters experienced. She had um, journeyed with this one woman during her pregnancy and had been at the hospital for, you know, 10 hours uh, with this woman during her labor. And she helped take care of the, this woman's older, older child, who's about four years old. And she basically spent six hours drawing stick figure Spider-Man cartoons with this little boy. And so after that, they were like officially friends. And uh, so a few months later, they were having the baptism party for his, his new little sister. And this little boy, I'll call him Zach, uh, they're in the convent in the kitchen. This little boy comes into the kitchen, sees sister, and he says, he throws out his arms, he says, Sister Mary, say that you love me. And she said, she says, oh, Zach, she goes, I love you. And he, you know, all smiles, and he bolts into the next room. And then he, she hears his voice, Sister Mary, say that you love me in here. And she goes, she calls, she goes, Zach, I love you. Silence. And then she hears like growing strain in his voice. Sister Mary, say that you love me in here. She's like, oh, he wants me to go into the room. So she goes into the room. She kneels down. She says, Zach, I love you in here. He's like, oh, thanks. And then he goes into the next room. <laughs> You know, St. Teresa Benedicta of the Cross, she once wrote, the world doesn't need what we have. It needs what we are, right? The world needs lovers. You know, those who give God permission to love them and then who overflow with that love, right? Those, those men and women who will enter in here, you know, enter into this mess, into this place and bring Christ. And I really believe that now is a new time in our world and in our church. He is raising up men and women to be lights in the darkness. He's raising us up to be healed into glory, to be witnesses of hope. 
God chose you because he loves you. And he chose you to live in this time with your particular heart, with your gifts and your gaps. And he wants to speak a particular word of love to the world through you, particularly. The world needs you. It needs your unique love. It needs the radiance of your life to bring Jesus' healing light uh, in a way that only you can. Our founder, Cardinal O'Connor, uh, was the late Archbishop of New York. And he said this. I'm just going to share with you this, these words um, he shared with our sisters. He said, we are not the adversaries of the women tempted to have abortions. We are not adversaries of the women who have had abortions. We are not adversaries of the men who have abandoned them. They are Christ. They are part of the body of Christ. Mother Teresa says, give God permission. Let Christ reach out through you. Let the Holy Spirit flow through you and heal. Let the ministry of reconciliation go to work. The Christ who said, pick up the pieces lest they be lost. There's much shouting and screaming. There's much anger. There's much bitterness and hostility. St. Paul says that we have to exchange bitterness for love. We don't want to let any words of malice pass our lips, any evil, anything hurtful or spiteful. How desperately this gentleness is needed. And if we're going to pick up the pieces of this broken world, if we're really going to show the world the sanctity of human life, it must be everybody's life. It must be the life of the prostitute. It must be the life of the drug dealer. It must be the life of the man who tells a woman, unless she has an abortion, he won't support her. It must be the life of the doctors who make fortunes out of abortion. It must be the life of the nurses who assist. It must be the life of those in Planned Parenthood. All of these souls are sacred to God. We have to heal." End quote. Because at the end of the day, you know, the violence, the contempt for life that we see and experience in our world is at root spiritual, right? Cardinal O'Connor would say that a spiritual attack demands a spiritual response. Death can only be countered by love. And so this morning, I just want to briefly look at three ways that we have sisters, uh, as sisters, have found um, so fundamental in our missions, um, the spiritual response, and three ways that we can actually allow Jesus' healing, life-giving love to overflow in us. And those are prayer, rest, and delight. So prayer. You know, prayer, you know, it's a personal, heart-to-heart -heart conversation with God is essential to life, right? Because prayer isn't about doing something. Prayer is about being with someone. It's about letting ourselves meet the gaze of the Father. And it, it reminds me of, of this story. Uh, we have many co-workers of life who help us in our mission serving women who are pregnant and in crisis. Uh, and they're just lay men and women like yourselves. Um, and one of them, her name is Dr. Elvira Perevicini. And she's a neonatologist in New York City. And she works on a team of doctors who deal with high-risk pregnancies. And what she's found is that she's the only doctor on that team who will regularly advocate for the lives of the children and their mothers. All the other doctors always prescribe abortion uh, to the hard cases. Uh, but one day, she was presented with an extremely challenging case. 
It was a 15-year-old mother and a 15-year-old father. And they were pregnant with conjoined twins, uh, so Siamese twins. Uh, it was two girls attached at the chest, and they shared one heart. And everybody knew it would be impossible to save them. But this heroic teenage couple said, we want to have our girls. We want to continue with this pregnancy. So Dr. Paravicini walked with them. And on the day of the delivery, the operating room was crammed with people. So like doctors, nurses, med students, like you name it, everybody was there. Um, but they were there, unfortunately, not out of compassion, but out of just kind of, to kind of see this freakish occurrence of Siamese twins being born. Uh, and, and a lot of heartless comments were being made, actually. You know, th things to the effect of, I can't believe this got this far. You know, what a tragedy, what a waste of resources. Why didn't she have an abortion? This is awful. You know, a lot of really awful things. But the murmuring hushed when the twins were born. Little Keela and Kayla were born embracing one another, weighing only about a pound and a half each. And the young father asked Dr. Pervicini if he could hold them. And he took his barely breathing daughters into his arms and he said, don't be afraid, daddy's here, daddy's here. And silence filled the operating room and a lot of tears were shed and, and such a powerful beauty manifested itself that every single heart in that room was changed. And after a few moments, Dr. Paravicini asked the young father if he would like her to baptize his girls because they weren't going to live long. And he said, yes. And so she began to make the sign of the cross on the first. She said, I baptize you, Kila. And he grabbed her hand. He said, no, that's Kayla. This is Kila. <laughs> you know? The gaze of that teenage father upon his infant daughters is like the gaze of God the Father upon you right now. He sees you, he knows you, he calls your name, and he takes joy in you. I don't know if you know that. He takes joy in you. And in this moment, you are held in this, this gaze of such supernatural, infinite, tender, personal love. You know, a, ga a gaze that reveals to us that we are worth so much more than anything we can do or produce. Because love alone defines the human person. You know, that's what we're made for. That's where we come from. You know, as one, one priest once told me, he said, you are God's sweetie. I was like, I'm God's sweetie. You know, but it's true. You are God's sweetie. <laughs> and prayer allows us to receive ourselves as gift, you know, as created by God, his beloved son or daughter. Because if we don't receive our own identity as gift, you know, as, not as something I create, but as something that has been gifted to me, we can face two temptations, right? We can face the temptation to self-contempt uh, in the wrong sense of the term, and we can face the temptation to see ourselves or others as a burden or as a project, right? But I need to receive myself as gift before I can truly receive another person as gift. I need to let myself be seen by the one who created me, before I can truly see. Uh, we recently went to a big uh, secular women's conference in Austin, Texas. It was our first time ever doing something like this. We 
got a table, paid for some speaking time on the stage, and just went to this conference. And uh, we set up our booth, and it was, we were surrounded by other booths that included like tarot card reading, women's fashion, the latest makeup, this guy that had this massage gun that he was selling. Um, <laughs> it looked great. <laughs> and we, had, we put up these huge, beautiful banners that said, you are good, you are sacred, you are loved, your life is a gift. And another one said, you are irreplaceable. And at one point, the three, three of us sisters who were there, we were in conversation, and we look over and we see a woman standing about a foot from one of these banners, and she is weeping, her shoulder, like shoulders shaking, gasping sobs, weeping, looking at this banner. And so we went over to her and spoke to her, and she told us that she had never in her life heard or seen or read that message. She didn't know she was good or sacred or a gift. She never knew that about herself. I think due to original sin, right, due to the lies of the evil one, due to wounds inflicted by others or ourselves, you know, our vision of God or and others can become distorted, right? Uh, like those mirrors in the carnival funhouse that every, just, you know, makes your nose really big or a little skinny, you know. But that, that's what happens. That, that's what the evil one does. But Jesus sees us truly, and he seeks to restore us, right? And, and he wants to make poetry out of our history, right? That's the, the grandeur of his mercy. He wants us to meet his gaze in all our memories, all our wounds. And I think one of the greatest things, without question, in my opinion, that we can do to build a culture of life is to personally engage his gaze, his healing uh, in our own lives, especially by encountering him in Eucharistic prayer, right? Not just receiving him at Mass, which is uh, par excellence, but spending time with him in the Eucharist, um, him who made himself vulnerable for us. Uh, I think one of my most favorite images of this is uh, it was uh, a Polish painter, Jerzy Gratz, who depicts the tenth station of the cross, of Jesus being stripped of his garments. And he depicts it as a Eucharistic procession in communist Poland. So Jesus is surrounded by, by crowds of people, and he's, he's stripped naked, uh, but he's kind of also with a monstrance, and there are priests holding a Eucharistic canopy over him, and little flower girls in their white dresses um, scattering rose petals. But it was like this, pr this profound vulnerability. This is how Jesus comes to meet us. Uh, and it's his vulnerability that we encounter in prayer, you know, his vulnerability in the womb, in the manger, on the cross, in the Eucharist. That's where we find true life. That's where we find healing. And he wants to bring his healing to all our places of, of sin and betrayal and pain, right? Because when we've been hurt, uh, by others when we've been a victim in any way, we can feel imprisoned by these wounds. You know, but in Luke 4, Jesus says, I have come to bring good news to the afflicted, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives, the opening of the prisons to those who are bound. And so essential to, to true prayer, to this healing prayer that builds the culture of life, is actually to participate in his forgiveness. And so that means looking at our own lives, where we've been hurt, um, and acknowledging the offense done to us. You know, not, not excusing it, not pretending it didn't happen, or that it's nothing. Acknowledging it. Um, feeling what we're feeling, feeling uh, the feelings we experience, giving ourselves permission to experience our emotions, anger, pain, sorrow. 
but then to ask the Lord to help us to see the other, the other who's hurt us as he does, um, and to release them of their debt to us, to renounce any lies that have lodged in our heart because of this wound, and to fix our gaze directly on him. This is the work of healing. This is the work of prayer. And by doing this, this prayer, it heals our vision, right? It causes us to look at ourselves and to see the pearl of great price for which he died. It causes us to look into the womb of every mother and to see Christ, uh, to look at our suffering neighbors and to see the broken body of Christ, uh, to look at the cross and to see life. So this is the power of, of prayer, of healing prayer. And so our next point, rest. You know, one of my favorite saint stories of all time is this St. John Fisher, who was a bishop in England, and he was captured and, and sentenced to, to be put to death. He was in the Tower of London. And the guard, the morning of his execution, the guard woke him up, shook him, and said, today's the day of your execution. And Bishop Fisher said, okay. He said, um, what time am I to be executed? And the guard said, nine o'clock. And uh, Bishop Fisher said, okay. And he says, well, what time is it now? He said, six o'clock. Okay, he said, well, you know, maybe just wake me up about 15 minutes before. And then he rolled over and went back to sleep. <laughs> <You know. laughs> the devil hates when we rest, true rest. Because rest, like John Fisher shows us, rest is an act of faith in Jesus. That Jesus, you are saving me, and I can't save myself. You know, tr true rest is actually like a secret weapon of the spiritual life. It's the fortress where peace lives. And as Saint Seraphim once said, a soul at peace will save a thousand souls. You know, there is a power to peace and to rest. And we, we live in a time saturated with the spirit of work and utility and efficiency, right? Uh, where the worth of the human person is often measured by what we can do or achieve. And the devil loves this. He wants us to, to engage in this, this frenetic activity, to reject the gift of humanity we've been given, right? To almost turn us from human beings into human doings. You know, but if you look in scripture, God doesn't say, you know, work harder, achieve more, figure things out on your own, right? He says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. You know, I was, I was thinking, of, it's kind of like an experience my, my brother once had. Uh, he, my brother is a tall, he's about six foot four, 300 pounds football player. And he had come with my parents and my sisters to be at my final vows a few years ago. And some of the sisters went to pick my family up at the train station. And so my family was in the bottom level and the sisters were at the top level and there's a big escalator uh, going up. And so my, my dad, my mom, my sisters get on the escalator to go up. And finally, my brother is last one on the escalator, and he was, he was carrying all these big bags. And so he steps on the escalator, and all of a sudden it goes like, and it just stops. <laughs> and my dad is already at the top of the escalator, and he turns around, and he's like, Greg, it's you! My brother's like, Dad, it's not me. Greg, it's you, Dad, it's not me, you know? And so everybody on the escalator has to like, you know, walk up this frozen escalator with all their luggage. Finally, my brother gets off the escalator and it's like, rrr, 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 rrr. <laughs> you know? 
But we, we can ask ourselves, you know, what's, what's causing our internal escalators to stop, right? What's stealing our peace? What's making us anxious? You know, I think we can feel, even, even in, in pro-life work, I think we can feel this invisible stress to do more, to carry more, to be more productive, right? And I think one of the deceptions of our time and culture is an activism that can be confused with generosity, right? And, and hidden in this, I think, is the illusion that we can save others by what we do, or that it's on us uh, somehow. But meanwhile, charity, true charity, moves us into God's action, right? Collaborating with him. So even as we're giving of ourselves and we're called to be generous, but even as we're seeking to respond to the needs that he places before us, we're not leaving our rest with God. We're not becoming frazzled. We're within ourselves and giving more of ourselves, not just pieces or parts of us, but moving as a whole, right? And when I move as a whole and follow what he's calling me to, I actually become a, a healing force in the world, right? And part of this is, is talking to the Lord, kind of connected with prayer, but asking him, like, Jesus, what are you doing here? What do you want to do here in this situation? What, what do you want to do about it? And entering into his action. Um, and so in, in terms of rest, I don't mean inaction. I mean first unifying and identifying ourselves um, by who we are and whose we are, not by what we can do. Um, resting in our identity in God. Because rest is ultimately about obedience to the Father, allowing ourselves to enter into what he is doing, letting ourselves be saved. Um, so instead of living in a posture of reflexive do-gooding, which kind of leads us sometimes to exhaustion and, and feeling scattered, to live uh, in a posture of total reliance upon God in our weakness, right? And so this means, yes, sleeping enough, right, if, if, as, as is possible, but also it means leisure. Now, when I say leisure, I don't just mean like time off. Uh, I mean time in, time into the deeper realities uh, about us taking time to actually stop and do something for the wonder of it, not to perform or achieve, right? Doing something that makes us feel like kids again, right? Painting, running, writing, a nature walk. Because leisure, actually, is not a luxury. It's a necessity. Um, and its opposing virtue is what we call acedia or sloth, which Kierkegaard defined as a despairing refusal to be oneself, right? But leisure is kind of like living with a contemplative outlook, seeing God in everything, receiving the gift in everything, not trying to possess or dominate or unpack without regard, but receiving the gift. And what happens when we engage in this, you know, because I think we can either be tempted to become kind of workaholics, right, um, or couch potatoes. It's kind of those are the two extremes of, of acedia or sloth. But when we live the virtue of, of, of leisure, it actually allows um, us to become a place of rest for others, a place where others can find harbor. And uh, one story that comes to mind in this is one of the women we served, uh, I'll call her Carrie, and she actually asked that her story be shared. Uh, and Carrie had experienced one abortion as a teenager and a second abortion in her early 20s. Uh, and after that, she was just filled with incredible uh, just feelings of, of shame and sorrow. And her life kind of shattered. She said she felt she was like living in a fog. Uh, she stopped going to church. She married twice, divorced twice. 
married again, uh, but the abortions haunted her. And she decided, she decided not to tell her new husband about them, kind of out of fear that uh, his response would confirm her fear of being unlovable. But after 10 years of marriage, Carrie's husband began a, a journey of conversion back to the Catholic faith. And he approached Carrie and asked her if she would be okay having their marriage blessed in the church. But believing herself to be unforgivable, she actually thought it would be best to divorce him so that she wouldn't stand in his way of coming back to the faith. Um, and when she finally told him her reasoning of her abortions so many years prior, full of tenderness and compassion, he asked her, is that what has been holding you back? You know, for the first time in her life, she had hoped that God could forgive her. And her husband assured her that there is no sin bigger than God's mercy. There's nothing bigger than his mercy and love. And so with hope and confidence, she went to confession for the first time in years. And she experienced the truth of God's infinite love in the sacrament of reconciliation and began a new life of hope and joy and, and further healing. But I, I love this story because why was she able to engage in this healing? Because her husband was at a place of rest to receive her in that moment, to receive her. You know, living and working with this posture of interior rest and leisure allows us to always be in a place to receive another, right? Um, and when, if we're not doing that, we can be tempted to look at the other as a project or a burden, right? A task to do, something to check off the list, you know? But actually opening our hearts, entering into this, this relationship of love requires uh, this experience of non-possessiveness, uh, rest. And it's powerful. It's really powerful. And that moves us to our third point. So we talked about prayer, rest, and finally, delight. You know, as sisters, we get mistaken for a lot of things uh, when we walk around, especially in New York City. Um, sometimes Blessed Virgin Mary, Princess, Queen. Um, one of my favorites was I was in a park walking with a group of other sisters and this little girl and her mom passed us and she was holding her mom's hand and she, I could hear her excitedly whisper and like, you know, like the, the little kid whisper that's actually louder than the regular voice. She's like, look, mommy, ghosts. <laughs> you know, but how, I was thinking like, you know, how often do we feel like ghosts in our own lives, right? In some capacity, you know, because we each have this burning desire to be seen, to be known, to be understood, to be loved. And one of the greatest gifts we can give to others is to look at them and be present to them as God looks at us and is present to us with love, with this gaze of love, uh, delighting in the other. You know, because every person we approach is holy ground, right? Every person we approach is holy ground. And so we want every person we encounter um, to experience in our word, our gaze, our expressions, our posture, that they are good, that they are important, that they are loved, right? And this is what we do when women come to us who are pregnant and in crisis. The first thing we do literally is to have a tea party. Cookies, tea, bring out the tea. And we let her empty the bucket, just share her story. And as she's speaking, we, we reflect back to her what we're hearing, you know? Uh, not, you know, her fears, her hopes, her dreams. But we also reflect back to her, our experience of her, her beauty, her goodness, the delight she is. 
Because what we found that unless a woman can experience herself as gift, she's not going to be able to experience her child as gift, right? Um, and it's, it's powerful to watch, actually, when someone can finally realize, I am beautiful, I am good, I am loved. And that's why in our missions, uh, celebration is such a huge part of our missions, in all our missions. So we have a convent where women live with us uh, who are pregnant um, during their pregnancy and for a time after. And in that convent, we celebrate everything. We celebrate birthdays, anniversaries, one-monthries, you know, baptisms, finding out the sex of the baby, everything. We party a lot. And uh, remember one, one woman told me, she said, you know, sister, she goes, all my bad birthdays, all my bad Christmases, have been made up for in this year. It's like, wow, you know, we party. <laughs> but also, too, I was so moved recently, we had our beautiful Hope and Healing uh, retreat uh, for Mother's Day, uh, I guess two, a week or two ago, where women who have suffered, what we're journeying with, have suffered after abortion, come for a Mother's Day celebration. Uh, and it's incredibly beautiful. And the sisters decorate its flowers, the most beautiful tablecloths, um, plates, cutlery, gorgeous meal, it's, it's stunning, it's beautiful. And why do we do that? So that each of these women can know that she is beautiful, she is good, that her children love her, that she is not the, the sum of her weaknesses and failures, that the Lord sees her, has never stopped seeing her, that she is a delight to his heart. Because our surroundings can tell us who we are, you know? And it, it's so important that others know that they are good. Um, and it's, it's, these women are my heroes. They're so beautiful. Uh, letting the Lord love them, heal them, uh, make them new. And so the power of delight, seeing the goodness of the other, especially when they can't see it themselves and revealing it to them, is, uh, at least in our mission, it's unquestionably one of the most powerful ways uh, of response in love. And so I just, I just want to close with a, a final story, uh, one of our, our favorite stories. Uh, and it's a woman who lived with us at our uh, mission, our Holy Respite mission in the city where women live with us, Sacred Heart Convent. And her name was Raquel. And Raquel was kind of a uh, uh, spunky, had a lot of energy, a lot of spice. And she'd always tell us, sisters, she says, sisters, I'm having my baby, but I would never tell what another, another woman to do, you know, what to do. I said, okay, you know. And then she had this encounter one day. I'm just going to share it in her own words. She said, I was in the hospital elevator on my way to a doctor's appointment. Another woman got on with me. I said hello, and she burst out crying and told me that she was pregnant. I said, congratulations, I'm pregnant too. She explained she just couldn't do it right now. It wasn't the right time. Then I felt Liam move, Liam is Raquel's baby, and I placed her hand on my belly. Do you feel that? Right at that moment, my baby kicked her. She said, wow. I said, yeah, my baby's going to be a linebacker. He's going to be strong, and he's going to be blessed. And she said, why is he going to be blessed? I said, because he's here. Whether you cry or you laugh, if you're here, you're blessed. You're put here for a reason. And she said, I'm going to have an abortion. And I said, no, you're not. You're not going to have an abortion. You're going to have a girl. I know that already because I wanted to have a girl, but I'm having a boy, but that's okay. You, <laughs> you have your girl and you dress her up in pink. Put ponytails in her hair and call her Raquel. And by the way, my middle name is Jasmine. 
And if she asks you how she got her name, tell her that you met a fabulous lady on the elevator one day, and she told you that you were going to have a beautiful little girl. And she laughed, and then we got off the elevator together, and I walked her down to make an appointment with my OBGYN. You see, I can be pushy. And then we asked Raquel, we said, Raquel, did you stay in touch with her? And she said, no, I didn't, I didn't see her again until two years later at the same hospital. She was pushing a stroller and ran up to me and hugged me. She had twins, two girls, and their names are Raquel and Jasmine. And she had them all dressed up in pink, just like I told her. She made it. She said, I love you. You don't understand, Raquel. I love you. I love you. I love you. I'll never forget your name, your face, your smile. I would do anything for you. I love you. And I said, I love you too. I understand. I have experienced it. Love is the answer. God is love. And perfect love casts out fear. Perfect love casts out death. You know, and, and right now, like Christ sees you in this moment. He's here. He's never left you. You know, we never have to be afraid or worried. He's with us. He's constantly loving us now. And letting ourselves just, well, just end in a little prayer, asking the Lord to fill us to overflowing with this love, uh, which tramples death. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, dear Lord, we thank you. We praise your holy name. Thank you for making us in your image and likeness, your beloved sons and daughters. Lord, we ask you to help us know deeply and to believe deeply that you are seeing us, loving us, rejoicing in us right now. That you have a plan for our life and our love. That you will never leave us alone. We give you glory, Lord, as we pray. Glory be to the Father, to the Son, to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and it shall be, world without end. Amen. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, Amen. Thank you so much. Please know of our prayers for you. God bless you. I don't even know what to say. But I know I feel better now than I did before I came here this morning. Thank you so much, sister. Sister. For the work of your order, we have a check. And in this box is a legatus rosary. And we hope when you go back to New York, you remember us here in St. Louis and our raviolis. Once again, thanks to all of you for being here. Sister Marie Veritas and Steranima Christi, thank you for your presence here, for your words to us and your encouragement to each one of us to pray and to take delight and to rest in the Lord, and in doing so, to truly do his will. Let us pray. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Loving and gracious God, you call us to share in your life by creating each one of us in your own image. We ask you, Lord, to give us the courage always so that we may be true witnesses to your life at work in us. Help us to reach out to those who are in doubt and in fear, giving to them hope and joy. 
We ask you, Lord, that with our lives, we bring your presence to others. And in doing so, make your world a better place. For we pray all of this through Jesus, your Son, who is our risen Savior and Lord forever and ever. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. May Almighty God send you forth with blessing, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Once again, wonderful to be with you, and thank you all for being here today. God bless you.